I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm thrilled to be here with Laura Lippman. Laura is one of the biggest names in crime fiction. She's the author of the Tess Monahan series and a whole bunch of excellent standalone novels. And her most recent thriller is Lady in the Lake. And I'm so excited to talk to her about it today. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yay. And thank you for coming up from Baltimore. Oh, that's just a pleasure. <laughs> not, not that I need to escape Baltimore, but it's not a bad day just to get on the train and run away for about 12 hours. Absolutely. Of course, many of your books have been set in in the city of Baltimore. And um, I'm wondering if you want to tell us a little bit about Lady in the Lake and what inspired you to write this one. Lady in the Lake is set in Baltimore in 1966, which is a year after my family came to live there. And like a lot of writers, after the events of November 2016, mm -hmm. I didn't know to, how to write about the present right now. Right. It felt frenetic and like everyone had um, attention deficit disorder and was sort of <laughs> bouncing around all the time. And people were so obsessed with a news cycle that seemed to be changing about every four to eight hours. If you're on Twitter, which you are, it, it, it'd be every even, five minutes. Yes. And so everyone felt kind of jumpy, and I didn't see how you could set a novel in the present. I've, I've since read two very excellent novels in the present that are coming out very soon, and I see it now. But at the time, I thought, I, I don't know how to do this. And I was finishing up a book, and I'd always been very interested in the governor's race in Maryland in 1966. Yes. And it's actually backstory in the Tess Monahan books that this is where her parents met. It's an election in which there was a party that put forward a traditional sort of mediocre but tested politician. Mm -hmm. And there was another party that put up a crazy racist outsider. Only in Maryland in 1966, it was the Republican Party that put up the more 
traditional conventional candidate right. happened to be Spiro Agnew. And the Democrats had this crazy guy, mm. Mahoney, who had campaigned on the very racist theme, Every Man's Home, His Castle, which was understood to be basically an homage to segregation. Right. Because this is when na- neighborhoods were being, being integrated. There was blockbusting. It was a it was an extremely chaotic time in Baltimore. But in Maryland in 1966, Democrats held their nose and voted for Agnew. Hmm. And he became governor and went on to his illustrious career. So right. I always had that in the back of my mind. And I was talking to my editor and agent. And I was talking about writing it as a prequel to hmm. the Tess Monaghan books. And my editor says, does it have to be that? And I inferred, rightly or wrongly, that for whatever reason, she was trying to gently nudge Push me <laughs> away from the series. And I said, no, it doesn't have to be that. But I sort of was walking around with this idea in my head. And then sort of a couple of things happened. And I'm I'm not, in general, an airy, fairy, woo-woo person. <laughs> but I'm also really into visionary art and outsider art. And mm. I believe in found objects. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the universe sort of started throwing a bunch of stuff in my path. I reread Marjorie Morningstar, as I do every year. And I had this insight that, oh, my God, Marjorie at the end of the novel, when Wally thinks she's washed up and looks like a grandmother, she's 30 fucking nine. It's like, what's going on there? And I'm already thinking that thought. And I can see myself. I'm walking up my street on this cold winter day. (laughs) And I come into my house and I check Twitter, as it happens. Sure. And my friend Megan Abbott is posting yes. all these very evocative photos from Catskill, the the Catskill camps, the ones you know that were sort of the adult like the playgrounds, Lodge yeah, things type that, of places. And I was like, I'm supposed to be rewriting Marjorie Morningstar. Oh, I'm amazing. supposed to write about what happens the day after, but it can't be the 1940s, right? It's New a York. different, yeah. It's like that's not, and I sort of didn't. It was sort of my, you know, I got peanut butter on my chocolate moment. <laughs> I just like shoved my two ideas together. And and that's where it began with this idea of what happens to this 30-something housewife who is reminded by a chance encounter with a man, once a boy who worshipped her. She's like, this isn't me. This isn't, isn't who I was supposed to be. And I've been happy and I've raised a son. But I was going to matter, mm-hmm. and now I'm going to go back and keep that promise to my younger self. And it, it did strike me, um, even in the promo copy, that it's the sh- she's described Maddie, uh, your main character, as a middle-aged housewife, and it was like, oh God, yeah. thirty-seven. <laughs> we go around and around on that. Where it's like, is she truly middle-aged? No one really thinks of late thirties as middle-aged. And it's it's a hard it's a hard word to use for Maddie. I mean, she's still quite beautiful, vibrant woman. It right. doesn't feel like middle age. But I remember years ago when I worked at the Baltimore Sun and I often interviewed writers. And I would have been thirty-five, I think, when I met Martin Amos, who had written mm. his midlife crisis novel, The Information. Yes, and I was like. Mr. Amos, I think 40 is very young for a midlife crisis. And you'd say, no, no, I'd say that's right on target. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that's about right. She's not, yeah, 40 by by 40. Yeah, you're definitely middle-aged. Yeah. 
I don't even feel middle-aged now, and I'm a lot past 40. <laughs> I, I, I'm, you know, trying to figure out what my crisis will look like. <laughs> Still working on I don't it. think they're obligatory, although I did have one. What did you do? I left my husband. Oh, okay. I ran, I, I, oh, I'm my goodness. Do that. I never connected that just now <gasps> to this novel. Never. I never thought about those two things in those terms. Isn't that isn't that interesting? That <laughs> so there's a little bit of Maddie also in you. Oh, definitely. Although the ways in which I've thought about Maddie and me is that I feel like Maddie's flaws are the things that I must avoid and be on guard mm-hmm. for. Maddie is this terrifying missile of ambition yes. directed at her target, and she's going to hit it. And she doesn't really worry about the collateral damage. Right. She doesn't even consider that there could be collateral damage. She's curious about the wrong things and incurious about the things she should be curious about. She just moves heedlessly through the world, not always paying attention. And I always worried that was who I could be if I didn't. But I have never really connected the fact that at the age of (laughs) 41, I ran away from my marriage, and I never Mm. went back. And it wasn't because of a promise I made to my younger self, but it was just because I I had to—I was in therapy, and the therapist told me this— I think it was like some sort of Talmudic folktale about a woman who goes on a journey, and she meets a man, and he um, hands her a rope and says, please hold this, and he jumps over the bridge that they're on— and she's like, I'm on a journey. I must keep going. And the man says, but if you let go, I will die. Oh. But she didn't ask to, to hold the rope. She didn't this. ask to end it. So that was, yes, that was the lovely, inspiring folktale that my therapist told me when I was <laughs> trying to figure out if I should leave my marriage. And he was basically telling me I had to let go of the rope. Wow. I know. That's, and, and so Maddie does. And, and in a time when it was even more difficult for a woman to be separated, especially a nice Jewish woman. Right. How, I mean, you were mentioning all of her flaws, but she also has so many complications. Like, she can't be who she wants to be in, in the society that she is born into. No, she's extremely bright. She's extremely sensual. Mm-hmm. Maddie is a person who craves pleasure. The sex scenes are pretty good, you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Because that's <laughs> Not pretty nerve-wracking. No, it's, it's yeah, hot. But she's she has denied that part of herself. Yeah. It was something that was awakened in her at a young age. Mm-hmm. And then she sort of accepted the idea, well, that's youth, and you park that. And you know, Maddie loves sex. She loves food. Mm-hmm. She loves drink. She loves beautiful clothing. She loves, I mean, she's really alive. She's sensual and sensuous. Yes. And she was kind of dying in that marriage. Yeah. She was going to just fade away. And so she's oblivious to many different things. But one thing that she does notice (laughs) when many people were overlooking it, of course, was that an African-American woman had had died and her body was found in the lake, hence the title of your book. Yes. She realizes that there's a counterpoint there. And these there are two deaths in Lady in the Lake that are based on real-life Baltimore stories. They happened to occur occur in 1969. There was a little girl who was killed. Yeah. 
And that was a huge story. Her real name right. was Esther Leibowitz, and that's a story I remember reading in the newspaper mm-hmm. as a small child because a child had been murdered. When you're a kid, that's really going to capture your attention. I'm not even sure I knew that was possible for a kid to right. be murdered. And I did not know the story of the real-life lady in the lake, Shirley Partridge, until I came to work at the Baltimore Sun more than 20 years later mm. because it received very little attention, and it is unsolved. It is not even officially a homicide, and it's just sort of a curiosity. And I worked with someone, the the rewrite at the Baltimore Sun, David Michael Etlin. Oh. He does a tour of Baltimore, and that's like one of his stories, the oh unsolved um, death of Shirley Partridge. And while I was writing the book, and this is really like the hairs on your arm stand up kind of moment, we have an old family friend, we call him Scoochie. <laughs> and Scoochie grew up in West Baltimore and he was over at our house. He comes over every 4th of July with a lot of his family members for a party. And somehow it came up that he knew the real life lady in the lake. Huh. He was friends with her son. And I actually, I, this is the horrible thing writers do. I stole one of Scoochie's memories. Mm. He was the person who remembered zipping up her dress when she was dressing to go out. And I took that and I, I gave it to another character in Lady in the Lake. And and I should mention that this novel is particularly wonderful because you have this third-person account of Maddie, but then every other chapter you switch points of view um, from like a bunch of different characters in the book. There are 20. There are 20, 20. standalone. Wait, I think there are 20 points of view overall, which means that there are 18 one-offs. There's wow. a character who's just been in the scene you've been in with Maddie, and you get to see it from his or her point of view. Right. And this was meant to show Maddie wants to be a newspaper woman. She's missing a lot. Right. Um, she's missing a lot. But it was also, I just thought, I want to do this. It sounds crazy, and I don't know of another book like this. If there, I mean... And it works so well. <laughs> does it? <laughs> it does. And there probably is another book like this because no one does anything originally. And I, I thought a little <laughs> bit about Ragtime. Sure. You know, that was because there are two real-life people in the book, Paul Blair mm-hmm. and the first um, the first African-American police officer who was a woman, and Lady Law, as she was Lady known. Law. But, you know, it's like, it was like when I was a reporter, and this is going to lead us to the person the book is dedicated to. Okay. So I was in the features department of the Baltimore Sun, and probably my two best friends there were a reporter named Lisa Pollock, who would win the Pulitzer Prize when she was 27, because that's how Lisa is. And she went on to work as a producer at This American Life. And and my other colleague was a guy named Rob Hyacin. Yes. And we were in the features department, and we wanted to write these really quirky, weirdo stories that were about everyday people. Yeah. And we had an editor who supported us. And one time we spent a summer, like, summer's coming, summer's always dull, the three of us fanned out across the United States and just wrote about pieces that were named Baltimore. That was like, it was called Greetings from Baltimore. And I went to L.A. and I went to a flop house called the Baltimore Hotel. Oh, my And goodness. Lisa went to um, Baltimore, Georgia, where there was a small business that sold clay for eating over the Internet because there's this weird Southern mythology about eating dirt, and it's like very 100 years of solitude. 
And Rob went to Baltimore Street in Las Vegas. And that's what I remember. And and so those were the three of us. And we were like, these stories are so much more interesting than movie stars or trying to have like the clever trend take on. Mm -hmm. I remember like one of my bosses came up to me and it was like, this is so long ago that Survivor was a really new television show. And he's like, write about Survivor. I'm like, I have nothing to say about Survivor. He's like, would you like to watch reality television? I'm like, but I don't have anything to say about it. Right. Like, I want to write about, and I did, I wrote about a girl buying her prom dress. I wrote about, I wrote about the last day of third grade for a little nine-year-old boy I'd met on another story, completely from his point of view. You know, my friend Lisa wrote about a girl who wanted to stack Oreos. And Rob was the guy, Rob was the guy who, when the editors would come out of the offices with the stupidest ideas in the world, usually based on something they saw through the window. Like, literally, it was, <laughs> like, there's someone outside my window collecting these weird berries from a tree. What's that about? <laughs> Rob was the guy who would go out there and make a story out of the people who collected ginkgo berries from the tree in front of the Baltimore Sun. Oh, my gosh. I'll just, just plow right into it. The yeah. book is dedicated to Rob and four of his colleagues at the Annapolis Capital Gazette, who were all shot to death at work. Um, the day after I finished the first draft of this book and sent it to my editor. And I didn't know I was going to write a newspaper novel. That might sound weird. I mean, in, in yeah, hindsight, I mean, how could it be anything sure. but that? I didn't know where Maddie was headed when she left her home and went off to make a name for mm-hmm. herself. And I kind of didn't want to write a newspaper novel. But there I was. I was writing a newspaper novel and I was steeped in the newspaper culture of my father's early yes. work days in Baltimore. And I was, my dad's gone. He died in 2014. But I corresponded with my dad's colleagues. Like, oh. tell me about the newsroom. Tell me where you lived. Tell me what it sounded like. Tell me what it smelled like. Tell me what it was like. Because I knew it was a different newsroom than the one I came into yes. 20-something years later. Right. And so, of course... Maddie desperately wants to be a journalist, and so she goes to this newspaper and offers her services. <laughs> she does. She she writes her way in. She's she's clever, and she doesn't lack for ingenuity. And for all of that, she's basically given a clerk's job. And a big theme in this book, and, and something that we've talked about online and in person, is the lack of mentorship that Maddie had from other women. Certainly, she wasn't even supposed to expect that a man would take her under his wing. It, yes, unless it, because unless it, it was sexual, sexual. Yeah, unless he had sexual interest in her. And that's just assumed that any man who right. talks to her has some sort of sexual interest in her. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's not 100% the world I came up in, but it's, and I'm obviously much later to the newspaper world than Maddie, my experience coming up in newspapers was that the women who had power were not likely to be my mentors for the most part. Right. And there were some really well-intentioned women who wanted to be mentors, but they didn't have power. And I remember mm. seeing that, like, at my first internship in the Atlanta Constitution. I had some I had some great female bosses. I hope they know who they are. I hope <laughs> the one in particular, I hope, you know, if she hears this, she knows I'm talking about her. And I had a difficult female boss who was brilliant but withholding. Right. And But she was smart. I mean, I think that was one of the weirdest lessons I had to learn, which is that you can learn a lot from people who don't necessarily like you that much. 
Right. Although, I mean, she liked my work and she was good to me when we were working together, but she was not my friend. She was an editor and I learned things from her. I learned a lot from her. And why is that such an, a shocking thing to find out that people who don't really like you can actually be pretty? But she was n- not my mentor. Right. Not my mentor. I had very few female mentors. In po- newspapers, I don't think I really had one. And 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 it seems as though once you started writing about crime in, in books, you found a community pretty... The, the crime fiction community is fantastic. It's so warm. It's so collegial. There are a few bad apples, but they almost they stand always. out. Yeah, there always will be. I mean, <laughs> yep. it's like, that's a weirdo. I mean, why, you know, we're supposed to be nice. That, that person isn't nice to other people. I mean, I started off, uh, I owe my entire career to a woman named Michelle Slung, whom I met at a party in D.C. It was a 70s theme party, and I think <laughs> Michelle and I were the only people who were sort of experiencing it unironically, like as in we were there right. for the 70s, right. and here we are again. Re-experiencing it. <laughs> and Michelle was someone who recruited me to write my first published short story, which is for a book of erotica. And I mean, that just came up at the party. Do you want to write erotica? I'm like, I don't know. Sure. Do I? Was like, <laughs> real book, legit book, legit money. And after I wrote that story for her, she said, you could write a novel. And if you ever do, show it to me and I will find you an agent. And she absolutely did that for me. My goodness. And I never forget that. That was sort of the first real mentor I ever had in my life. And then there were these other established novelists who were fantastic. Mm-hmm. Margaret Marin, Julie Smith, Sarah Paretsky, they were so, I mean, Sarah Paretsky had basically helped create Sisters in Crime to give women a leg up. And, you know, by the way, a lot of the guys are really helpful, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, (laughs) mean, Harlan Coben is so supportive of female crime writers. And we notice. We're we're paying attention. (laughs) I know you are. But it's in, in the 60s in Baltimore, it was a different time. And there, I mean, I think there's one other, well, there, there's some sort of very, very ancillary female characters in the newsroom that are mentioned by name and they, you know, they work on the women's pages. Yes. There's one other female reporter that Maddie meets and she's known as the Battle Axe. <laughs> and I will admit she was modeled in part on a real woman named Helen Delick Bentley, who went on to become a Maryland congresswoman. Oh, my goodness. And Helen worked at the Baltimore Sun. And Helen was incredibly anti-union. That that part, I took that for the book. (laughs) But, you know, you would meet these women. I had a boss. I'm not going to name this name, but it's really easy to figure out if people— But there was an editor at the Baltimore Sun when I was coming up and she was hard as nails, and she was so tough, and she didn't like my work. And I had a friend who had the same problem. We asked to meet with her, and the very fact that we asked to talk to her was considered almost a sacrilege. But I got into the meeting with her, and at the time I was covering um, social services, which was defined as poverty, welfare services, homelessness, juvenile crime. It was a huge beat. And she said to me, I'm interested in stories about power. She said, you know, the only people in my life who have power over me are airline ticket agents and the woman who does my hair. (laughs) 
like, wow. And she said, so I'm interested in your beat, who has power and who doesn't. And this was, again, this idea of someone who doesn't really like you, who doesn't want to be your mentor, can still help you. I went out and I wrote a story that was about how many pieces of paper you had to fill out to actually get welfare benefits, what it took, how many visits. There had recently been a horrible incident in a welfare office where a worker had been stabbed. It was like, okay, so what is the client experiencing? What happens to the client? And what is, you know, what can the social worker do? She gave me the idea to go to what at that time was, this is almost like the pre-Mari Povich one-day paternity court system in a Maryland <laughs> county where it was like, we're going to test, we're going to establish paternity, we're going to, like, and one day they would do it start to finish. And so, you know, I found she didn't like me and she didn't seem to like many women, but once I cornered her and forced her to talk to me, she ultimately helped me. And if you see that with Maddie and the battle axe, yes. I think of her, so kind, who... In the end, she does give Maddie good advice. Yes. You know, sitting there in the bathroom where she hides out and reads her copy. And Smokes cigarettes. Smoke. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you know she's the battle axe. <laughs> and Maddie has a certain number of things that she does on her own to try to work the system. Right. She's, um, you know, she goes off. I'm trying to think of the exact right term. I think I was about to say something that I would consider politically incorrect. <laughs> but um, Maddie is someone she – no one's telling her how to do the job, really. So she's making it up for herself. Yes. And she's running all over town, interviewing people, trying to get closer to any information she can about the death of this young woman known as Cleo. And she really can't see the forest for the trees. She right. can't see what links to what. She can't see what really matters. She can't figure out who has power. She's completely... Oh, correct. She's completely in the dark about what really counts and who's really in charge and where would Cleo fit within this. And she thinks she has this huge story. And, I mean, really... The tragedy of Cleo is that her death isn't a big story to anyone outside those right. who knew her and loved her. And certainly when you talk about power, um, especially in 1960s Baltimore, you race and gender and class play such I was it's it was interesting to me to read your book and and try to figure out what trumps what when. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a good way to put it. <laughs> You know, it's I, I keep relearning this lesson over and over again as a writer, which is that the more specific you get, somehow the more universal you'll be. Yeah. And if you try to write very broadly and very universally, I think if I had charged into the first book I wrote after the election of 2016... And I wanted to write something that was an on-the-nose political allegory. If I wanted to write an on-the-nose Me Too novel, yes. I, I would have failed wretchedly. I just would have. So I thought I was running away and retreating into 1966. And I just dug down and I tried to really understand the era. I went back and read a lot of newspapers, a lot of magazines, novels of the era. And... 
Weirdly, the specifics of 1966 are incredibly relevant in 2019. Certainly seems that way, huh? Mm. The uh, the governor who wanted a man to protect his house. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. We've come a long way in, in various respects. Yes. We but. <laughs> but. But. I mean, one of the early scenes in the book, something that sets a lot of stuff in motion, is the fact that a white man can't quite believe that Maddie is dating a black man. Mm-hmm. And it infuriates him. And I think you could imagine a certain kind of man following the same poisonous impulses today. Absolutely. I mean, well, you do you do uh, clarify that it was illegal. Right, right. It's, it's just before loving, I think. I think yeah. it's just before that Supreme Court case. But, but, it's, but it's, not, yeah. it's not about that for him. Of course it's not. And I mean, he's married and he's supposedly happily married and he sees himself as being a good person and mm-hmm. something, something is unleashed in him and his small, petty grudge will mm-hmm. end up hurting people you know, end up having huge consequences for people who have done nothing to hurt him. Yes. I mean, one of one of my favorite points of view that you get into is, is um, a groper. <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I think it's been a long time since people have thought about men in movie theaters grabbing women's knees. <laughs> and um, I, my editor saw an early version of the book where that chapter was in it, but she hadn't seen the whole of it. Mm. And she's like, I don't know if we need the guy in the movie theater. And I said, trust me. Yes. Trust me. And I'm kind of, um, I like to have it both ways as a novelist. I will be incredibly meticulous about certain historical facts. And then sometimes I'm like, I don't care. I'm just going to go with it. (laughs) But I was really meticulous about the movies and the television shows yes. and what was I, on when and what would it be possible. So it is so deliberate that they're watching the Sandpiper and the Sandpiper <laughs> is described and very, you know, it's described accurately. Yes. And the things like that really mattered to me. I wanted Maddie's culture. I wanted the world around her to be as accurate as possible. I, I even loved what we learned of her just from a couple of early books that she liked that you mentioned. Right, right. She's sort of this serious but maybe kind of middle-brow reader who's trying to push herself a little bit. And and she reads Herzog because someone from Hadassah <laughs> says that Bella is self-loathing. That's right. <laughs> and she's upset because there's a character named Madeline who's not very nice. And like, she doesn't know how she feels about that. She can't quite not take it personally. Did you go back and read a lot of other books from the time? I read some of the books from the Times, and I also, there's one book Maddie read that I have not yet read to this day, and I had never heard of it. Um, I wrote it down because (laughs) Keepers of the House? Yes. Yes, and I was so fascinated by, and it had been, you know, it had this like serious literary reputation, and Maddie's trying to talk about it at a dinner party. I need to really credit... um, in addition to working with my longtime editor at Morrow, I've had only one editor my entire career. At the, That's kind of, I know. I'm afraid. Wonderful and lucky. It's wonderful and lucky. But my old friend, Lizzie Skernick, also yes. helps me with my books. Oh. 
Lizzie and I go way back. Lizzie profiled me back in 2003, (laughs) and that's how we became friends. And Lizzie was someone who said she really pushed me to define Maddie as a reader and a writer and an intellect. She said, I need to see more of this. I need to see the Maddie who yearns to write, who reads more seriously than most people. So, you know, I, I did not read The Keepers of the House, mm-hmm. but I, I was like, Maddie would have. Maddie would have very dutifully read that book. And it sounds... I, I, it sounds, sounds really interesting, yeah, right? The Wikipedia page makes it sound interesting. I don't know. Um, and, and so what have you been reading lately? Other than... Uh, I just finished a book by Allison Galen called Never Look Back. Allison's a good friend, um, a crime-writing colleague, but I think she's really special. I just sort of, when I read one of Allison's books, I'm like, she's the only person doing this. They're somehow, mm. they're very, you feel like this could be happening to your neighbor. It's like, okay, so if my neighbor were involved in a fascinating murder mystery, this could be the one. And they just feel so grounded in real life, but with extraordinary things that happen. And she's been a journalist. She's been a tabloid journalist. Um, this this one has everything. It has a, it has a crimey podcast. It has, <laughs> it has a great old murder. It ha- and it also just has the best kind of twist where you don't see them coming, but they feel earned when they come. Mm. I I mentioned that there are a couple of books that have come out or or are coming out right now. I read them in galleys that showed me, oh, this is how you write about present day. Uh, One is Very Nice by Marcy Ramaski. Yes. Am I pronouncing her name right? I hope so. And I was just so transfixed by this book. Because I read it as a book of people who have all been traumatized by recent political events. If, it, to me, it was like the PTSD book of, of yeah. course, this is where we are now. We're all a little bit, I mean, like, this is not a partisan statement. This is everyone right now is a little bit crazy. <laughs> just, even, it, whatever side you're on, you're, you're just yeah, going a little bit nuts. And also um, Laura Meckling's How Could She? Yes. Which I felt like, oh, it's that great updating of the group and the best of everything, but for now. And again, politics are not front and center, but all of the people in this book are being affected by the things that have happened. Um, I just started reading um, the new Ruth Reichel, Save the Plums. Save the Plums. Is that, did I get the title right? I think I'm so. terrible with titles. Um, we'll, we'll get it right in the show notes. <laughs> and I, ha- I read... Um, Fleshman in trouble. Fleshman is in trouble a long time ago. I mm. think I literally read like a photocopy of a. I mean, it was on my computer as a computer file. So I felt like I felt very privileged. I thought that was fantastic. Um, I'm trying to think. I'm. I can't wait to read the new Kate Atkinson. Kate Atkinson is one of my big-time heroes. Mm-hmm. And I got to meet her in Fangirl over her. Her <laughs> editor was very kind enough to arrange for us to have coffee one day in New York. So there's so many literary writers who arrive in the crime genre announcing that they will be changing it, that they will be transcending it, that yes. they will be doing it better and stand back. So Atkinson did the complete opposite, which is she started writing these Jackson Brody yes. books, and she made no claims for herself. She never said, I'm transcending the genre, I'm doing something different, I'm going to have books with loose ends, as if that's never been done before. She just wrote the Jackson Brody books. 
And they fulfill all those grand claims that other people make. They're not like anything else. No, they're not. I mean, you, you can't. I don't know another writer right now who could take their main character and put him in a coma for most of the book. <laughs> she uses coincidence in a way that fascinates me. Because real life is full of coincidence, but as a novelist, you're kind of cut off from it usually. Yes. But somehow she makes it work. <laughs> and I just, I am crazy about her books. And I feel as if she does this because if you go back to her very first novel, Behind the Scenes at the museum, museum or at a museum, yeah, there's a really big secret in the book. And it's huge. And when it comes time for her to reveal it, she does it so perfectly. Hmm. And I think she's always had these two instincts for the really, I mean, I mean, she's writing world-class literary novels, but she understands and does not condescend to certain genre conventions, yes. which is what makes the Jackson Brody books and the other, I mean, you know, transcription is kind of a spy novel. And, yes. And she wrote, you know, alternative, speculative history. It's like, she's amazing. Yes. And so I can't wait for her new one. Which the title of which already escapes me because same I'm, same I'm bad at titles. Covers blue. <laughs> <laughs> That'll narrow it down. <laughs> All the best books have blue covers I, this summer. Yes, That's what I'm saying. I think so. I'm I'm, I'm motioning to Laura's galley. <laughs> um, and and very quickly, what are you watching? What am I watching? Well, um, I recently did a big rewatch of Slings and Arrows, which is my television comfort food oh and i'm consider myself to be sort of an evangelist for slings and arrows and i i'm very proud of the fact that i brought my husband into the religion of slings and arrows <laughs> and that at some point he was interviewed by an english newspaper and they were saying you know david simon says the show you should be watching is slings and arrows so I watch slings and arrows um so i'll be really honest I, I think I tend to be. I have a nine-year-old daughter. Yes. And one of the trickiest things in the world is to find things to watch With together. Her. Yeah. Because at a certain point, the adult becomes very tired of animated fare. Yes. I'm kind of obsessed with one of her shows called Game Shakers, but not in a good way, oh, but no. in a sort of a good way. Um, it's a story about four teenagers who create games but the star of the show is really the father of one of the kids who's this out there rapper who's presented as kind of this bizarre man-child. And I think it's actually probably very awful and very racist in its concept, but his performance is so brilliant that you, huh. he's, he's a brilliant comedian. He's, but so as my daughter and I f try to find shows to watch together, we settled on and started this is so, it's so retro, it feels kind of progressive. Yeah. Mainstream ABC sitcom called American Housewife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think is so healthy for my kid to watch because the idea is the main character doesn't look like other people, doesn't care she doesn't look like other people. She's kind of mean sometimes when we talk about that. <laughs> and, you know, she has a sweetheart. It was like, I just, we watch that together. Um, I do watch reality shows. I am watching Big Little Lies 2, although I'm not convinced that Big Little Lies 2 should Had to exist. Mm -hmm. 
and I don't know how I feel about that. Um, I watched Dead to Me. thought it was fantastic. I, I love it. Dead to Me. There was actually sort of like a inquiry through my film agents about, does Laura ever think about joining a writer's room? Because Dead to Me is looking for female writers. And I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. But oh, my God. Um, is the I can't there partly because of you just like books or what your husband does? Or? It's primarily time. Okay, got it. I, I need to write a book. I need to um, take my kid to school every day. Mm-hmm. And I, um, but also, I don't think I'm well-suited to writer's rooms. Mm. I just don't think I play well with others. And I you know, got to a place where I get to mainly be by myself. Yes. And because I am married to a television producer, I have no romantic notions about it whatsoever. Right. I really know how it works. <laughs> and he's currently working on two shows at once and working 12 to 14 hours a day. Oof. And I'm working on a novel, working <laughs> on a short story, working Great. on some essays, taking a tennis lesson. <laughs> That's wonderful. Doing the grocery shopping. And, I, yeah, I, I, I have the more enviable life. <laughs> it's really Absolutely. Yeah, I I sometimes see you tweeting and feel like you're talking to me directly because there are people who assume that I want to get into TV because my husband writes for TV. (laughs) It's uh, I I see what goes into it. This is like I think about this all the time. So I think our culture is really ill-equipped to understand couples where both people are ambitious and talented and have things they want to do. We have no framework for this. The only framework we have is A Star is Born. That's all we have. Yes. We have almost no role models of just two happy, contented people who are doing doing their own thing and both doing it well. It's like one has to be jealous of the other. One has to be up. One has to be down. One has to go throw themselves in the ocean. Mm -hmm. It's crazy to me. It is. And I don't know if I always was healthy enough not to have, to never have had some resentment. But I know that now I'm in a place where I'm so proud of the person I'm married to. I'm so proud of his work. I find it interesting and engaging. And I think he's terrific. And, you know, I would always, you know, say his shows are among the best shows I've ever seen on television. And I don't, you know, feel that I'm parking any objectivity to say that. (laughs) But I don't want to be him or do what he does. And I don't think I could do what he does. I'm not sure he can do what I do. You know, hunkering down to write a novel is very solitary. And it requires just maybe a different personality. He's written two very long form, two very long yes. nonfiction narratives, but those required a lot of reporting. Again, other people right, were involved. Yeah, I, I wish, I wish people could just move away from this idea that couples have to be that one person in a marriage of two ambitious people, one person has to be hurting somehow. Yeah, has to be silently seething, and I. Is it a sexist idea? Probably. Probably. I mean, I also think that, for me anyway, um, there's less, there's way less money in media. So, uh, you know, he's doing better financially than I will ever do. And I do think that that's a part of it. Yeah, money is, 
Money is so... I mean, one of the reasons I love being a crime writer is you get to write about money. <laughs> and money kind of went missing in the American novel for a while, in, in, like, the really great literary novels. I feel like you go back to the 70s and 80s, and no one's really writing about money. John Irving did it a little bit in some mm. of the mid-books, where, you know, you how Garp and Helen get by is part of the story. Water, yes. Man, how he gets by is part of the story. I think so many novels were being written by people who were in lives where they were either tenure-track professors and so they were sort of comfortable. Not that people were rich, but they didn't spend a lot of time worrying about money. Right. So it didn't seem like a topic, which money is one of the greatest topics that ever was <laughs> because it everybody's weird about it. People are weirder about money than they are about sex. Mm-hmm. And they're crazier about it. And every And I'm including myself in this. Yeah. Everybody has such weird stuff about their money. And crime fiction sort of allows you to go there. And, and like, one of my favorite novels of the past, I think it's past 10 years. It might be older than that now. Capital by John Lancaster. I love that book Mm -hmm. because it's about money and real estate. I think it's the best real estate novel. I probably haven't read all the real estate novels, but I think it's better than... Richard Ford's real estate novel, um, which was Independence Day, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's better than Jane Smiley's real estate novel, which was called, I think, Good Faith. They are real estate novelists. I just that's, realized that's right. that. It's okay, all, that's what we, they are. It's a flat circle, and we pull it all together. You know, when that whole conversation started, I was like, of course they're real estate novels. Real estate is one of the great topics of <laughs> fiction. Um, yeah, I've... Thank you, Billy Joel. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, this is an honor. The best. I I can't, I'm so excited to be part of this. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 